This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining. This is my first show for Teachers Talk Radio. I'm very excited. I'm Maud, your hostess for the day. So good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. As I said, this is my first radio show, so I need to introduce myself. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. And I've lived in the UK since 2008, which is quite a long time in itself. I'm also a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach mostly languages as well as humanities. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. So today, the first topic that I want to deal with is institutionalized racism in UK institutions and also decolonizing the curriculum, which I've been working on this past two years since the first lockdown in 2020. The second issue I want to deal with in today's afternoon show is that of child poverty in the UK and its impact on education. So both of these issues have a direct impact on our students and the way we teach them. And this is what I want to raise today. We will welcome later in the second part of this show, two guests, Bob and Jessica, who are both working in education. We will welcome Jessica first. Jessica is a secondary school teacher who teaches uh, MFL, foreign languages, and Bob is a TA specializing in Senko support. They have many years of experience and they will come to the show to discuss the issue of childhood poverty in the UK. But first, let's think about this week's news. So this week in the news, we had the sad incident reported by many, many newspapers of a strip search in a state school and it made headlines. So I'm going to give you a quick summary of the facts, just in case you haven't heard about it. So this is an account taken from an update by the Metropolitan Police, so I took it from their website. I'm quoting. The search took place on Thursday, the 3rd of December 2020, when police were called to a school where staff were concerned that a 15-year-old girl smelled strongly of cannabis and may have been in possession of drugs. The child's bag and outer clothing had already been searched by staff at the school prior to police arrival with no drugs found. Two female officers conducted a further search of the girl in the medical room at the school under Section 23 of the Misuse of Drugs Act. No force was used and no drugs were located. The search was not undertaken in the presence of an appropriate adult. So this is an, an account, an update from the Metropolitan Police website. As you heard, this event happened two years ago in 2020. Now we only hear about it now because the young girl who is now 17 
is prosecuting the Met Police and the school. According to The Guardian, I quote the article that was the headline uh, yesterday, there was a black girl strip searched at a London school and she's suing the Met Police. So we call her Child Q because she remains anonymous. She's a black student who was strip searched when suspected to have drugs. And uh, although she claimed she had her period, the search went on and she has launched judicial procedures against the school and the Met Police. The school and Hackney Council are being asked to produce a report on findings regarding the incident. So I'm sure now that you know uh, what has happened and that you have an opinion on the issue. What I want to add is that this this week, just yesterday, a group of prominent black UK citizens have written a collective letter regarding the incident. And I'm going to read it to you. It's quite a quick letter. Dear Sir Stephen House, we are writing to you as a group of black women and men who are outraged at the recent news that a 15 year black girl was strip searched at her school by Met Police officers while menstruating. This intimate search occurred without an appropriate adult or teacher present after a teacher at her school alleged she smelled of cannabis. It was also suspected that she may have been carrying cannabis. Subsequently, no drugs were found on her persons. However, even if drugs had been found, an intimate strip search of a child in this context while on her period without an appropriate adult or teacher present is inexcusable. People from black communities do not feel safe in the presence of the police, nor do they have trust or faith that the police will treat people from these communities fairly and without bias. This incident is yet another example of how racism is endemic within the Metropolitan Police. So this was the beginning of this letter and it was published online on the mumsandtea.com website. You can uh, read the rest of the extract. So I chose to start my radio show today with this because I thought it was quite relevant. I've been working on decolonizing the curriculum for two years now, since 2020. I started because I had more time due to the lockdown and um, I was also very aware of what was happening in America with the Black Lives Matter protest. And um, this example, Child Q's example and ordeal, suggests to me something that has been re recurrent in UK news over the last 30 years, and that is of the issue of um, racist institutions or institutionalized racism. So from the government, we have had uh, Kemi Badenoch, the Equalities Minister, who condemned the strip search and she presented the government strategy for tackling racial disparities in the UK. She called it, I quote, an appalling incident. And she also said that the UK is a country that cares about ethnic minorities. The Metropolitan Police has also apologised and a senior officer described uh, Charles Q's ordeal as truly regrettable treatment. So, although these events happened in 2020, protests have started being organized in Stoke Newington and Manchester. So as an educator today, we can wonder how come strip searches are being used uh, in an educational setting. So I don't know about your schools, but this must be a pretty rare occurrence. 
um, we don't have enough data regarding this. I've been trying to search for some data, but I couldn't. I'm going to ask you what you think about the assumption that was published in that letter from um, famous uh, black and black women and men that the Med Police is institutionally racist. This is quite a statement. However, it's not a new statement, because if we um, remember the conclusion of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry in 1999, the Macpherson report found that the Metropolitan Police was institutionally racist because they failed to give an appropriate service to some groups in society because of their color, culture or ethnicity. So Stephen Lawrence's murder happened many, many years ago. And yet, Child Q's ordeal shows that this is still a very contemporary issue. So I'm going to look at um, the, um, the text in. And if you have anything to say regarding the issue of institutionalized racism, uh, it'd be lovely if you could share your thoughts. Now, uh, regarding this work that I've started about decolonizing the curriculum, I would like to say that it has been um, quite a discovery for me to realize how much um, how much embedded in the culture uh, racism can be in the schools and in the police. Uh, we all know the names of Bieber Henry, Nicol Smallman, who were murdered in July 2020. We know Stephen Lawrence, who was murdered in 1993. And uh, we should all know about Joy Gardner, who was also murdered by police officers in 1993. So we have, sadly, a tragic history of institutionalized racism in the Met Police. But this is a big issue when this sort of situation happens in schools as well. So I wanted to uh, raise awareness the fact that in April, and it's coming soon on the 22nd, it is uh, Stephen Lawrence Day, which should be an annual national commemoration of his death, but also a celebration of all the work his mother has done to raise awareness about institutionalized racism in the Met Police and uh, as a whole in UK society. This uh, Stephen Lawrence Day was uh, started by um, the then Prime Minister Theresa May, who wanted in 2019 to honor uh, Stephen Lawrence's death. So I think we should uh, definitely, as educators, think about preparing maybe an assembly or a lesson um, about Stephen Lawrence so that our students can still learn about him and learn about what his mum has achieved uh, in protecting uh, her son's memory. And it's definitely something that we should uh, promote in our schools as far as decolonizing the curriculum is concerned. Now, I found a YouGov poll online about um, institu institutionalized racism. And when the poll started in October 2019, it was um, only 20% of the people who were asked if um, uh, the Met Police was institutionally racist who believed it so. Now, there is an invert, inverse uh, reaction because 46% of the people interviewed in 17th, on the 17th of February in 2022 have decided that, according to them, the Met Police is institutionally racist. So it's 20% more people who believe that we have a serious issue of racism in the Met Police. And yet, we're still waiting for uh, a change. 
Now, what has Black Lives Matter succeeded in since it was created in 2015? It is obviously a movement created in America by three women. And I would like to say their names because I think they deserve recognition. So Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi are three activists, grassroots activists, who grouped together in 2015 and decided to create a movement to um, promote black lives and also to target the police in America because they judge that the police is um, institutionally racist. Now, Black Lives Matter is an American um, group, but it has spread and it's uh, very popular in many, many countries. There is a branch in the UK and uh, they raised awareness on that fact. So for me, um, Black Lives Matter has raised awareness of the persistence of racism and the way it hides in plain sight. The Black Lives Matter movement has made me realize that I had to also do my share of the burden to fight racism. And this is why I'm interested in talking about decolonizing the curriculum and the classroom today with you, because I believe that this is the only way we can intrinsically change society and uh, get rid of the bias so it's a big it's a big uh, fight we're putting on because a lot of uh, black educators in the uk are not always in agreement some people judge that the police and schools are not uh, racist institutions and um, we are not in agreement so there is a very famous headmistress who is doing some great work in wembley catherine beerbalsing who um, is very vocal about uh, her views, her political views on Twitter. And um, I'm going to quote um, her reaction when um, Black Lives Matter was nominated uh, in the run-up to the Nobel Pro Peace Prize a few years back. And she wrote on Twitter, when the world is upside down, it makes sense that a movement that caused so much destruction should be nominated for a Peace Prize the Nobel Peace Prize. Let that sink in. So obviously, as an educator, we have a different political view or a different vision. But I believe it's important to also allow your students to know about the Black Lives Matter in an objective way, to know that it was created by three Black African-American women and that their aim is uh, might be political, but it is also about the protection of Black lives whether we agree with their politics or not. Now, um, I often advise colleagues when they ask me about decolonizing the curriculum, what uh, we can do in our daily practice in our classroom. So I have devised an acronym because I know it's quite fashionable in educational settings. So it's called PSPS, which means promote black African and black um, artists or mixed race artists, writers, thinkers, scientists, and students in your lesson planning. Showcase their work or their art in your classroom whether via uh, slides or by uh, printing or having copies of the artwork. Praise their contributions to society whenever you have the occasion and also support their political actions and activism. Because um, as uh, we know, 
we need to teach our young students to to be politically engaged. It's very important for a healthy democracy. Now, um, we talk about statues a lot, don't we? When uh, when we talk about the Black Lives Matter, you remember the statue of Colston that was um, thrown into the into the canal or the river in in Bristol. I just want to remind you that there was a cast iron statue of Jane Reed, which was put in place of Colston statue. And it was a beautiful statue of a, of a black female activist wearing a beret and a leather jacket and um, just raising her fist in the air in protest. And this statue only stayed up on that square for 24 hours before it was removed by the Bristol Council. And um, two years later, it hasn't been put back. So I always wonder why we let Colston stay for 250 years or so. But Jane Reed's statue was only allowed 24 hours. Um, I find that quite telling, to be honest. So when we ask what decolonizing mean, it's simple. Decolonizing mean that we want to promote uh, black uh, or mixed race people's work in fiction, in history, in science, and we want to do it in our classroom. It also means that we need to question the way our society is uh, built and the way it gives uh, priority to certain groups. Uh, mostly, for instance, at university, we study a lot in the curriculum, a uh, white middle class male. and. Uh, Decolonizing the curriculum means that we try and rebalance this uh, situation. So I'm, I'm always advising colleagues if they want to try and uh, raise awareness about decolonizing the cur curriculum, if they can look at posters and uh, materials in their school, um, do they represent the, a diverse student cohort? Um, is there a diverse world history presented in history lessons? Or are we mostly celebrating white middle-class men and their achievements? So if you want to start decolonizing your school, you need to focus on this. What is my um, school promoting? And what is in the corridors? Having a look at it. So I know there's been a lot of awareness. And um, in the science department, now we see lots of pictures of female scientists because we want our students to, um, particularly female students, to consider a career in science. So I know there's this awareness, but I think we need to be more systematic about presenting the successes and achievements of people from ethnic minorities. Now, um, change starts with oneself. So if we don't make our own changes, society will never evolve. So my advice is always to start with your classroom. Whether you teach science or uh, other core subjects or arts or food tech, you can always find black or mixed race or um, ethnic minorities, people who are excelling at your subject. It's always worth having a picture of the, these people and um, maybe a copy of their art. If it's a book, a copy of the book cover. If it's a sculpture, a printed uh, copy of the sculpture, anything that promotes our uh, ethnic minorities, writers or scientists 
is important. So in my own classroom, I have a collection of books written by Black uh, African-American or Black British writers, also French writers, because I do teach languages. And uh, I call it my um, Black um, Lives Matter shelf, although it is not particularly political. It's more um, a promotion of Black writers. And my students can access it as reading time when they're done with a task. It's a simple thing, but it's it's a, a first step. Um, another advice I always give is that we do Black History Month in October, but I'm always wondering why can't we just have a little moment uh, each month, not just a lot of content in October, content that we don't always have time to assimilate, for instance. Um, so it would be great to consider having this sort of um, tradition as a school every uh, last Saturday or um, not Saturday, last Friday of the month, an assembly celebrating someone from an ethnic minority um, or asking the students to prepare a little summary about a famous black or um, Asian or ethnic minority um, person of influence. I think it, it starts with our schools. It starts at our grassroots level and it's going to be more potent if we do it regularly not just once a year for a whole month, but once a month would be ideal. So I call it Black History each month. Um, so a few ideas that you might want to develop as an educator. You might want to do a show and tell when you ask your students to choose a Black personality and to present it to the rest of the class. Uh, you might want to ask students to present one black female scientist uh, a month. Uh, what did they discover? Um, how difficult was it to promote their work as a scientist? It doesn't take so long in a lesson. It can only be done maybe at the beginning of the lesson or at the end for eight to ten minutes. It, um, and it's, it should be student-led. We should let our students take over when they do that sort of presentation, because when they do it themselves, they'll feel more involved and they will feel a connection, a bigger connection than if we give them content um, ourselves. As I said earlier, devoting one class each month or one part of the lesson each month to black history would make it more easy to access and maybe also more palatable rather than a big emphasis on uh, in October every year. We can use many resources on the, um, that are on the Black History Month website, but we don't have to do it just in October. And I think it would be easier for the students to assimilate all that knowledge if it's done once each month. Now, another way would be to introduce um, Black and ethnic minorities uh, persons of interest as role models whenever we mention a white European role model. So I would like it to be something that becomes um, instinctive. For instance, if we think about a writer in English, we would think maybe about Ian McEwan or uh, Dickens or some famous writers or J.K. Rowling. But then we should always think, hang on, can I give the name of another writer who is just as important, but who happens not to be white and middle class or white and working class. Um, 
so if we have that instinct, it's this automatic reaction, we might realize that unconsciously, we have a tendency to always focus on those the famous people, the famous writer, the famous scientists who happen to be white. So this is a simple mental gymnastics we should try and emulate, but I do think it would have a, a massive impact on decolonizing the curriculum, making it more diverse, making it richer, and also might, it might be less biased in that way. Now, it's another thing I'm interested in. I do teach humanities, and um, it's a fascinate, fascinating opportunity I have to be able to teach history um, to KS3. And um, although we do start with um, the migration of humans from Africa to other areas in the world, we do not linger long enough, in my opinion, on African history. And a, an easy test would be for any history teacher to ask their students, could you name one famous African king or queen the way we are able to name one famous English or British king or queen? So I'm I assume that we wouldn't have many, many answers regarding African or uh, Asian kings or queens. So it is important that we try and always show that Henry VIII was important in, in England, but there, there were other kingdoms and there were other queens and kings who deserve to be known or just as a counterbalance exercise. So in my opinion, we should definitely try and introduce uh, history, um, African history in uh, history teaching. And we could do it as a comparison at first, and then slowly introduce more elements until we get to a more fairly balanced way of presenting history. Because um, I'm afraid in our students' minds, only European history seems to be known and then the rest of the world is all put together in one bag of mostly unknown. So it definitely is something we need to work on. And this is the same thing about African literature, because we know many, many American, uh, English, and also we might know a few French or Russian writers, but we often forget that there is such a thing as African literature or uh, Asian literature. So we do need to, every time we quote a famous book and we study a famous book, we should also try and include a similar book maybe with the same topic, um, but by an African or Asian writer, just to enrich that curriculum. Because decolonizing the curriculum doesn't make it um, just short-sighted it makes it more diverse it makes it richer and less white european focus right as far as PSHEs and safeguardings are concerned because we have these duties now as educators in english state schools we have to support our students we have to be able to make sure they do not um suffer emotionally or physically. So we, we always need to be on the lookout to safeguard the children. There is 
a lot of things that we can do about um, safeguarding our black and mixed race students or students from ethnic minorities. And uh, it is very, very important that we um, always um, pay attention when there's racial slur or racial attacks among students and that we always um, try and stop these kind of racial slurs because it's too often that we let our students use language that is not acceptable just because we think uh, they use it for banter or because it's what they do in the street once they're out of school and i do think that having a very strict policy on uh, respectful language is very important now also another issue we need to think about is promoting afro hair and um lifestyle uh, hairstyles that respect natural hair because um, we all uh, should be aware of the dangers of using chemicals to relax hair or chemicals to whiten skin and this is in particularly for um, some parts of the asian communities where white skin is seen as a something to aim for so as a PSHE or safeguarding educator we need to make sure that we can um, protect our students by giving them factual information about the dangers of chemicals that are involved in some of these beauty products and um, that we are just promoting a more natural way of uh, hairstyling or um, a more natural beauty style. Another issue that I'm very aware in decolonizing the classroom and the curriculum and trying to make our schools um, very free of free of racism is to promote LGBTQ in uh, in our ethnic minorities because it is even more difficult to be LGBTQ when we come from certain communities. Um, the concept of intersectionality, which is um, the accumulation of difficulties, for instance, if we are from an ethnic minority and then we happen to be a woman or we happen to be transgender and then we happen to have maybe a disability. All these layers of difficulties make life really, really, really hard for some of our students. So intersectionality makes um, our students' lives at risk at times in some ethnic communities. So as an educator, we need to promote a safe space and our schools should be safe space, safe spaces. Um, and this is why I started today's show by mentioning Child Q, because I do think this is quite a striking example. It is an extreme example. I'm very much aware that strip searches don't happen regularly in UK schools, and I hope they won't in the future. But I do think it's quite an example of a school that is not a safe space for children. And if you can't be safe where you spend most of your daytime, how are you going to develop as a functional, um, well, um, well brought up, happy individual? Um, we don't know the life, um, long term effect of such a strip search on a child. So it is definitely something that should not be allowed in schools and that should be um, definitely done with a parent's permission, for instance. So, as I was saying, if we want our schools to be non-institutionally institution, racist, our schools need to be diverse. And to be diverse, we have to have a different curriculum because currently 
it is still too biased and too focused on a white middle class European um, mindset or, or content. And uh, this is when uh, studies in LGBTQ studies can help because we also have great role models in the LGBTQ uh, community that should be um, promoted in schools to make our LGBTQ students more recognized and more seen and more accepted. Um, I'm just going to advise you to have a look and um, a browse on the internet once uh, the show is over. You can find some great initiatives if you want to promote a decolonized curriculum in your daily practice. There is a 100greatblackbritons.co.uk, which is um, a website with a competition that you can use every year about black British history. Um, there are more and more universities that are focusing on uh, uh, black curriculum, although I do think um, we should aim at um, not a black curriculum or an Asian curriculum, but uh, just a universal curriculum, to be honest. And this is what I'm trying to do in my practice. We should aim for a decolonized curriculum, which encompasses any race or cultures or ethnic groups. It should be universal and it should value every part of history and every nationality. I know it would be a lot of content, but I'm sure it can be done if we set our minds to it. Now, um, I would love to hear some of your views on these issues of, uh, for instance, um, institutionalized racism in the Met Police, in schools, um, the case of Child Q. So if you're free to use the uh, text in, that would be delightful. We could uh, talk about this. Um, now I'm just going to reflect on uh, what it means uh, to have uh, students who are experimenting racism inside schools the way Child Q experimented it. I was lucky enough to meet uh, a young girl, Ruby, who um, also prosecuted her school a few years back. That was before the lockdowns because her school didn't allow her to keep her natural hair out. And um, they, um, th there, was a, there was a court case and then she received compensation from the school. She changed school. Now she is uh, studying at university, but Ruby was really brave. And uh, Ruby challenged the school policy about hair because she believed that the school policy was racist. Um, her mother happened to be a teacher, and I think it's um, it's actually quite telling that uh, her mother had, was equipped to to um, assert her daughter's rights because she knew the system, the educational system, being a teacher. And not all children have parents who know how to navigate uh, the school system for complaints. So, for instance, and not all parents have the time to do so, the inclination and the, the financial resources. So I do think it's very important that Child Q and Ruby um, are taking their schools into account and are prosecuting the schools if need be, because it shows that they're not going to accept the status quo. They want to say when something is wrong or immoral, and they are actively uh, trying to change their, their environment. And I think this is 
this is something we should praise. And I think these girls are really, really, really brave because it's very uncomfortable to put yourself in this position of fighting an institution. Um, it makes for a much easier life to, to just, you know, accept and, and keep your head down. But these girls decided that they had to put on a fight and say, no, this is not acceptable. So even though we might think it's um, maybe just a detail, I think it shows that we have a great generation uh, in front of us and we need to support them. So my work uh, as an educator is to make my school more diverse, more open, and also open to criticism. And I think we, we wouldn't have to go as far as involving the police and the justice system if we had schools where dialogue was, um, was at the core of education. We shouldn't get to having um, strip searches in an educational settings if we had a better communication system in place, I do believe. Um, so this is uh, now the first uh, part of our topic um, of the day. Um, it's, it was a lot of very deep issues, a lot of very um, difficult questions. But now I'm going to let you uh, listen to the news. Um, and I hope we can tune back after the news. Thank you. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. 
With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb Digital Portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Hello, dear listeners. This is the Sunday afternoon show with Maud Warrett. Um, as I said earlier today, this is my first ever radio show as a hostess. So bear with me. Um, there might be a few technical glitches, but the good intention is there. So our next talk is going to be about a different topic. In the first part of the show, we were talking about decolonizing the curriculum institutionalized racism in schools and the Met Office. And now we're going to focus on a different aspect of education. And the topic I chose for this week is childhood poverty in the UK. So it was quite difficult actually to find uh, enough data to give you a, a very clear uh, presentation about childhood poverty. I did um, I did look into it and I went first on the official government websites. So I went on the ONS, Office for National Statistics, and uh, I noticed that there had been a freedom of information request uh, concerning the impact of COVID. And um, we were asking um, if there was any data on the free school meals that were provided during the lockdown in March 2020. Uh, to June 2020. And sadly, uh, the Office for National Statistics published that it had no access to school data about the number of free school meals given. So I went on to use other websites that are not governmental websites. So I gathered a lot of data from a website that I would recommend you to consult if you're interested in the issue of child poverty. And this is the Child Poverty Action Group. So to give you a um, quick picture of child poverty in the UK. So the UK is a first world, a developed economy, a modern country, one of the seventh uh, most powerful countries economically in the world. And yet we have approximately 4.3 million children in our country who are living in poverty. And these figures date from 2019 to 2020. So these figures are pre-COVID. We haven't got any recent data about the number of people of children in poverty. So I'm, I'm only focusing on pre-COVID figures. So to sum up, this is 31% of children in the UK who are living in a state of poverty. Now, it might be difficult to visualize this number, so I'm just going to explain it in a, a teacher mode. When you face a classroom of 30 children, you will have nine of these 30 children who will be living in poverty. So it is a lot. And it means that depending on where you teach, if you teach in a state school, you're more likely 
to have children who are in poverty. Obviously, the definition of poverty varies country to country. But in the UK, we have established that um, the children who are in poverty are children whose parents have an income, a yearly income, which is 60% less than the UK average income. The UK average income is £29,000 a year. So if you have 60% of that sum, you are living in poverty, according to the Big Issue website. And also, under the poverty line is when your household income is less than £15,000 a year. Absolute poverty is less than £15,000 a year. So just to summarize, if you happen to be a teaching assistant and you are a woman living with two children on your own without a partner, you might be living in absolute poverty in UK terms. So this means that we are, every day we go to work as an educator, we're going to teach children who are living in a state either of absolute poverty or poverty. And we might also have colleagues who are living in a state of poverty. So I think it is quite telling to, to have an idea about the, all these facts. Now, the children who are living in poverty usually suffer from... Um, the par their parents suffer from low rates of maintenance payments, particularly in single parent household. 49% of children who live in poverty only have one parent in their household. There is a gender inequality in employment and pay. So single mothers are more at risk of being paid low, lower pay. There is a rise in childcare costs. And um, children from ethnic minorities are more likely to be poor. 46% of children from ethnic minorities are living in a state of poverty, whereas it's 26% for white British students who live in a state of poverty. So these figures are actually quite shocking. And it is important to note that it wasn't always so, because between 1998 to 2003, the actual number of children living in poverty fell by 600,000. So it is not always, um, it is not always because we have policies that are not supportive. It can be also because we choose not to be supportive. So as I said, we don't have recent figures. We don't know what the impact of COVID has had. I find that quite telling that we haven't collected the data about the children who needed these free school meals delivered during the lockdown. And I'm just hoping that we'll find out these, these figures in the next couple of years. But I wanted to invite two guests today, two people who are like you, teachers or educators, two people who have a very different experience of teaching. Um, so I'm going to introduce my first guest. I just want to, you to know that this is um, two guests who actually live in North London and teach in North London. Their schools are very different. One is a primary and one is a secondary, but they're not far from each other. They might be 1.5 miles away from each other. Um, and yet they are in very different boroughs. 
with a very different student cohort. So now we're just going to listen to Jessica. And um, I hope you enjoy um, listening to Jessica's thoughts on the issue of child poverty. So, Jessica, thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio. You're our first guest, and uh, we're delighted to speak with you today. Uh, so, Jessica has been teaching languages um, for quite a while, and also she has been uh, doing some Senko work in her school in North London. So, hello, Jessica. Hi, hello. So, Jessica, I wanted to ask a few questions uh, on the topic of the day, which is child poverty in the UK and its impact on education. So I wanted to ask you first, how long have you been working in education? Oh, I'm in 28 years and 18 of those in the UK. Okay, so you're pretty experienced and you know um, the UK state school system very well. So what are your main responsibilities at work? Uh, at the moment, I'm a classroom teacher. I have to plan lessons. I have to organize the curriculum. I have to prepare pupils for exams. I am a folk tutor, so there is a bit of a pastoral role as well. Um, I'm in charge again, as I said, of checking achievement, improving progress. And we have duties here. Very busy bee. Indeed. <laughs> so, uh, Jessica, what is your understanding of um, child poverty in the UK as a whole? Uh, for me, this is quite an interesting one because um, in terms of poverty, we normally relate it to the, to the income that, for example, kids have in a family, uh, access to property and, and, and access to services. Um, I think it's also really interesting to think that in the UK, some of the things are provided by the state, but still there is a complete um, not accessibility to, to lots of things. And um, it's the deprivation of, of opportunities. Although some of those things are covered, still it seems to be not uh, enough to access or, or to improve maybe the the situation there at the moment, we we certainly know pupils that literally don't have enough to eat at mm -hmm. home. They only eat at school, so it's from that, or maybe as well the, 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 the lack of uh, lack of aspirations are super harsh to say. So maybe I don't want to go into that like that. But it's sometimes a, a determination of what poverty brings and that um, stagnation of the situation. That for me, is the main in the poverty uh, here in the UK. There are different forms of poverty. Uh, many sociologists have developed theories about it. We know Bourdieu was describing the financial poverty, the uh, social capital poverty, and exactly, what, yeah. yeah. Exactly, cultural capital mm. is a big um, sign of poverty for me as well. And that, that is one of the biggest as well that I've observed. Yeah, so it's not just in terms of access to food, heating, no. and it's also about aspirations. That's actually a very important word that um, I take from your answer. So um, my question now is, uh, obviously, um, you work in a state school. Are there children in poverty at your school? Yes, they are. I mean, I'm not looking at the pastoral victims, so I cannot pinpoint who they are, but we do know um, lots of parents who are out of work at the moment, some parents that are working, but they are 
salaries are very, very, very minimum, so they are in work, but it's not enough for them. We observe it in simple things such as the uniform. You know, people start to buy a uniform and we see year 11 children who are wearing the same uniform from year 7. Uh, yeah, they are, they are. And we know, as well as some of you might know, uh, the people premium uh, factors that, yeah, the, the, in, in our school in particular, it's very high. So you do have access to data. You mentioned the pupil premium. Some. Sometimes what I find is that it's not easy to find that um, so straightforward. Mm -hmm. So I've got a, a feeling that, you know, SLT, you know, and they know it, they push these numbers. For us as teachers, that's not as easy to find. I'm sure there are ways, but straightforward, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Okay, so so maybe the people are in the front line, don't always have access to all the information. No, exactly. And you don't know, sometimes some families are struggling greatly, and uh, I think that is a big failure as well. It's not, they always say, it's not about gossiping, it's about knowing exactly what's going on with your students. So yeah. you can maybe support them better. For, for sure. Knowledge is power, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jessica, do you have students who you believe are um, under the poverty line in um, in the UK, it's approximately fifteen thousand pounds a year for income. Yes, definitely. Yes, yes. That I can assure you. As I said, people with no work. I mean, people whose fathers don't have work or who have other own jobs that are very low paid. Uh, sometimes jobs that are unstable. Uh, maybe some sectors of the economy that were badly hit by COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but yes, yes. We, we do have a so, so you do have a high level of that. All right. So my question now is uh, regarding your practice as a teacher, uh, and I know you teach languages, so it might be different from a maths teacher or an English teacher who does core subjects. But uh, do you have to teach the children who are in poverty differently? <sighs> <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, the answer should be yes. Um, I'm, I have to be honest and say that we tend to have a very uh, mainstream, when I say mainstream, I refer to regular approach. Um, the school might have, and the adult or might have some specific uh, interventions to target these pupils, but in the classroom, I'm, I'm honest with you, uh, it's a very um, uniform type of there is a lot of an SEN mm -hmm. with a little bit in terms of poverty I would um, I mean, I feel dishonest to say that I don't well, you do as much differentiation as you can, I guess, uh, based on NCN needs, but it might yes. be a different type of need for children yes. in poverty. Exactly. It, it is quite different. And I don't think we have had any training or anything about that. And I don't, I don't think this is in the language of, of schools at the moment, from my experiences. Yes, we know about this generation. We know about the difficulties, but it seems that it doesn't change our practice at least not in the mainstream classroom. So would it be a little bit like the big elephant in the room, um, child poverty then? I think, yes, I guess it is because when you are in the school, you know, with so many difficulties in this area, but we, we, we tend to teach as in any other place. Uh, I think we're not targeted, but the missed targets. We, we are concentrated in many other areas, but no, this one, this one in particular, I think, yes, I think people do not 
They might talk about it, but it seems not to be in the agenda. In the agenda. Important, yeah. Right. Maybe it has been forgotten with coping with COVID. Maybe. As well. Although yeah. there's links. Isn't oh, it? imagine. Yeah. Imagine the links now. Because um, all the... Yes, sorry. No, I said the links with those families during COVID, how they've been affected. Exactly. Um, so maybe it's going to join up with your experience as a Senko. But my next question is, do you believe child, po child poverty is a matter of safeguarding then? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I would, okay. I would say, you know, safeguarding at the moment is treated from my point of view individually in terms of if a pupil is suffering for certain things, is due to the fact of his um, whole context. Um, and the one that probably will go into this is the, the idea of neglect, but if a parent or a family is um, investigated or accused of neglect, it's never on the fact that this family may not be able to do anything different and may not be able to provide because of the social situation. Uh, so I think it is a safeguarding issue, but I think that safeguarding is taken um, as I said previously, individually, other than as a whole, if someone is poor and they cannot provide a uniform or, the, for example, the material for food tech, that's a big one. Food tech, the pupils cannot provide the materials to 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 to, to cook, mm -hmm. and and so on. That parent might not be neglecting them. That mm -hmm. parent might be poor, and I don't think that that's still that differentiation. That's a very good point you're making. Um, I'm just wondering if that could be almost because it's a taboo to talk about money, finances and poverty. Yes, it's a very difficult one, even with us. So because we tend to talk a lot about the pupils, but we as, as you know, workers um, are in a situation where our salaries have been uh, below the, the inflation, they haven't been increased mm -hmm. uh, below the inflation level. We know that what we can access to what we have is much less than before. Uh, and and it's, it's a, it, I haven't heard anyone in all these years telling me they are really struggling with, with money and I cannot believe that. <laughs> particularly, <laughs> particularly in London. I mean, we all know yes. that life is more expensive in the capital. So uh, that's a very good point, actually. Um, I was going to ask you how you think child poverty affects you at work. Um, and it covers staff and also students. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think we're very limited in, in our offer, um, and this is not a criticism, you know, the work management does, but we offer certain things which are very good to the pupils, but we, we are always, sometimes it's really difficult to offer things that are free. And with this, as you know, you know thinking about languages, mm -hmm. sometimes the offer of traveling to, yes. to Spain or France is such an important uh, enriching possibility for pupils. And we haven't had that in more than a decade. And it's not, you know, because the school maybe doesn't want, but the pupils cannot access them because they cannot pay. Yeah. And they're missing out on that. Uh, in terms of the everyday teaching, I think, um, I mean, we do have resources. I think that that, that is quite good. We, we could do with, for example, having textbooks that we don't and the pupils cannot afford. Mm -hmm. So I think in that respect, I, I think that the delivery of lessons is, 
it's, it's, it's all it's, it's okay uh but it, whatever it's extra or i don't know and it's an independent school so i cannot even start naming all the clubs of things that probably they have. Yes, yes, but <laughs> obviously we're in the state sector. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's that limitation that I think yeah. I guess it's paramount in languages. Uh, you can't acquire language properly if you don't actually uh, trial immersion. And um, COVID obviously had an impact, but as you said, it's been 10 years that you haven't been able to take your students to Spain. No. No. So it's a, it's a, almost a generation of children who missed out. Yeah, definitely. Oh, do you know, camping trips, anything that requires the school to pay because the children can't, mm -hmm. Okay, because there's no special budget for schools where no. there's a lot of children of pupil premium. Not that I know. I mean, there is a budget. Definitely, there is a budget, but um, that's not managed by us teachers. Yes, so the school probably has their own decisions. Mm -hmm. I understand. Um, so I just wanted to ask you something personal, and um, you might answer if you feel like um, you can or want to. So, how does child poverty affect you personally at work? I think it is a very um, I think it's obviously very personal. Um, it is very distressing to know the difficulties that some of our students uh, got off. It is it's, it's quite a fact. I have to say this again, because if you're not in the pastoral team, you probably don't know much. So you might notice something there. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there was one of my year 11s who was not going to be in the previous lesson because that was the full take exam. Mm -hmm. Then I received a message saying, oh, these people will be here in the lesson. When I checked with him, he said, oh, um, I didn't know I had to bring the ingredients for the exam. For the exam, no. for GCSEs. No, GCSE exam. He didn't know, but he couldn't say. Then Why? next week, he was able to do it, probably. Probably they were able to, maybe, I don't know, save us for the money. And then he did. And I went to see them. And at the end of the day, he gave me one of the, the tarts he made. Oh. Every I almost cried. Yes. This child could not have us. <laughs> and he was almost at a point where his GCC was, you know, yes. uh, in danger. Now, how is it possible that the school would not have all those things? I don't know. You, maybe, maybe the cat, I really don't know. You would assume it's that for an exam, it would be the school providing the butter, the flour, and the sugar needed to yes. make this. But probably that teacher doesn't have that budget herself. Yes. This thing of so tight. Uh, sometimes you see children, as I said, in uniform. It's been old, it's dirty, or ah, uh, and you and you realize. I I seen children with shoes that with the first rain, they the sole um, well breaks and they, they literally. Uh, with, with, with a how do you call it, smiley shoe, yes. something like open shoe or yes. something. And, and you think, well, because probably they're very, very cheap and they cannot buy a new one. It is very distressing. Yes, I have experienced that as well. I have a student who asked me permission to put her shoes on the radiator when it rains because there's holes in her the soles of her shoes and then it gets soaked with uh, rainwater. So we have, I'm sure we ha all have experiences of children who are struggling because of a lack of funds and um, it has an impact on their learning. Imagine being in, in wet shoes all day 
um, it can't it can't be helpful. So um, thank you very much, Jessica. That was amazing. Um, very thoughtful. I really I'm really interested in the in the issue you raised. Um, the fact that maybe we don't take poverty as a general element in safeguarding. We don't include it so much, and um, it might just prevent us from having the bigger picture when we deal with a child for safeguarding or for Senko as well. And also the fact that it might be just because poverty is still a taboo and we need to we need to change that. So I'm hoping that because we talk to you today, we're doing our little a little um a step forward in the right direction. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much Jessica and um I hope to see you soon in our school environment. <laughs> So this was Jessica. I think uh, it was a very interesting conversation. I apologize for some of the uh, quality of the audio. Um, Jessica also has um, children who were a bit loud at the end of the interview. So the key points that she established in the conversation were um, poverty of aspiration in, uh, in her students, lack of budget provision in, in the schools, for instance, for uh, school trips and also for uh, language trips to Spain um, and also maybe for some food tech preparations as she mentioned with her student in year 11 who didn't have the money for the ingredients so he had to reset his uh, GCSE uh, task. We also talked about a certain form of taboo uh, which prevents people from addressing poverty as a safeguarding issue and um, I think it was a, a very, um, very deep conversation indeed. So um, now I would like to um, play a little bit of the news so that we can refresh our memories about the issues of the week. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. 
our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. The Scottish Conservatives have called for Curriculum for Excellence to be axed. Oliver Mundell, Scottish Tory education spokesman, said, Scotland's education system used to rank among the best in the world before the SNP came to power. We should return to the strong, traditional, teacher-led approach that gave so many of us who went to our local school a decent start in life. Quality, knowledge-rich, universal education is at the heart of being Scottish. We pride ourselves on being a nation of innovators, entrepreneurs and thinkers. We are at risk of losing all that if we keep sticking to the same distinctly unscottish approach that has seen our schools plummet down international league tables. A report in December found one in four primary school pupils to reach expected standards in reading and numeracy. In Tanzania, extensive collaboration between the Ministry of Education, Science and Technology and local government has resulted in an Education Sector Plan, ESP. For the first time in Tanzania, the plan provides an overarching framework within which the plans and budgets of all implementing agencies must be set and aligned to. The new ESP highlights two key policy initiatives. Firstly, Tanzania's commitment to providing 12 years of free and compulsory basic education to the entire population, leaving no one behind. And the progressive expansion of technical and vocational education and training to provide Tanzania with the pool of skilled human resources needed to advance to becoming a semi-industrialised middle-income country by 2025. Since the Government of Tanzania started implementing a fee-free basic education policy in 2016, enrolment has increased in basic education and the number of out-of-school children has decreased. The education plan recognises that increasing school access while simultaneously improving learning outcomes 
will present a major challenge for the country. Thank you for listening to the news. As I said, this is my first radio show as your new hostess. I'm Maud, and today we were discussing the issue of child poverty in the UK and how it affects our students. So we had a first speaker, Jessica, who worked in a secondary school in North London. And now we're going to listen to Bob, who is a TA specializing in Senko, and uh, he works in a primary state school. 1.5 miles from Jessica's school, but in a very different environment. Let's listen to Bob. So we're going to welcome our second guest of the day, uh, Bob. Uh, hello, Bob. Hi, how are you? All good, thank you. So Bob is, uh, he works in a school in North London uh, and it's a primary school. So we'll have a, a different vision of um, education. We, we talked to someone who worked in a state secondary school and now it's a state primary school. So um, Bob, could you uh, tell us more about uh, your experience? How long have you been working in education? Uh, since, oh gosh, 2018. Um, I did some volunteer work uh, at the back end of 2017 for I think about three or four months, maybe about three or four months, and then um, a position came up for interview. So uh, I uh, I went along, thinking I wouldn't get the job, and I got the job. Uh -huh. And which then left me with the decision: Would I take the job? Because I wasn't actually <laughs> sure. I thought I'll do the interview and see how it goes, uh, and then you know if uh, if I get it, great, or you don't have to. But uh, yeah, so I think that was probably about 2018, and it was. Um, a position for a special education needs support uh, teaching assistant. Okay. I started work with my charge then. All right. So you had almost two years as a TA, and then you had the COVID experience, which must have changed things a lot in your primary school. Was your primary school still um, open during the first and second lockdown? Yeah, we, we never closed. Um, initially, um, it was key worker. Uh, and in the, the, the first lockdown, the big lockdown, we, we didn't have that many across uh, bubbles. We used to, um, we put like nursery and reception together in uh, in one classroom and there were maybe five or six um, kids who were coming in each day. Mm -hmm. um, but with the second lockdown, that really grew. So all of a sudden we had 12, 15, and we got to a point in, uh, in the reception, we had I think 25 kids. So we had to sort of break into two separate groups. So really that would... A bit of a switch around because we were back into educating rather than um, effectively childcare. Yes. Uh, but for the first one, it was um, yeah, it was like primary school in Finland. Five kids in a class, <laughs> lots of time outside. And, you know, this, I thought this, this is how it could be. So yeah, there was some positive in the midst of the first lockdown. Then having uh, small classroom sizes and maybe more time to spend with the children. So now that we're back in a semblance of a normal, new normal, what are your main responsibilities at work? Uh, at the moment, I'm quite split. So I primarily work in reception, um, but I also work in year five now and in year one. So uh, I'm split across the but year one. I'm with a, a particular child supporting uh, in the classroom with uh, maths and English. Mm -hmm. Uh, in year five, um, it's, it's something similar, but I work with smaller groups, a, a bit like intervention and actually within the classroom. Okay. Um, and some outside. And in reception, I am the uh, the phonics king. 
mm. started to do the little wandle program of phonics and was sort of really really keen on pushing that through so i've been working across the four different reception classes um, taking groups um, well individually four five six kids uh, throughout the afternoon and doing phonics work with them so it's a very different uh, job you have. So you can be with the smaller children and then the older children, and you you get to know many many kids, I guess, in the in the whole school. Yeah, I actually like the mix because I, I find even though the, the days a bit sort of rushed going to and from, uh, I quite enjoy the way it's compartmentalised and. Um, Joking apart with reception, academically your brain does go a bit fuzzy because number of bonds to 10 doesn't really challenge me that much. <laughs> These days, anyway. Yes, um, I imagine. At least, at least with year five and six, you know, you kind of sometimes you have to remember something that you learned 40 years ago and effectively teach yourself it in the 30 seconds you've got before you're then working with whoever you're working with. So no, I quite like that. It's a good one. A little bit more sort of mental agility is required. Yes. Um, and older kids are good because they understand sarcasm, which I which is, which is I, important. I yes, it, it's the perk of the job, isn't it? So um, now I'm going on to the the topic of the discussion, Bob, if you don't mind. What is yeah. your understanding of child poverty in the UK? My understanding. Mm -hmm. um, well, I understand it's a significant issue. Yeah, we we have. Um, in the 21st century and in a country that is, uh, what are we now, sixth, seventh, eighth richest in the world. Mm -hmm. and we have uh, children and families who can't afford to feed themselves or buy clothes, which is uh, quite staggering, really. Mm -hmm. um, do you have uh, an idea, a grasp of the figures by any chance? Um, let's say you're in a class of 30 children. Would yeah. you know how many children would be considered as uh, being uh, in a state of poverty? Uh, I wouldn't have found, but if you ask me to sort of take an educated guess, mm -hmm. um, I would probably say somewhere between three and five. Well, actually, I looked up some figures before this um, show today, and it's more yeah. closer to nine out of 30 children. Wow. Yeah, so I think we, we don't actually know the extent of it, um, currently, and bear in mind that this figure, um, it was taken before COVID happened. So yeah. we don't know yet the, the impact of COVID on poverty. So I think, yeah, if you face your, your classroom of year five, you might actually have more children than you think who are, um, under the poverty line. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? It is, it is. And I think that's why we need to talk about it um, on the radio today. So I was going to ask you, because um, we don't know exactly um, your student cohort, so do you th how, are there any children in poverty at your school? Uh, there will be. I'm not privy to detailed information, but uh, I certainly know we, we have um, a relatively high number of children who are classed as, uh, as vulnerable, mm -hmm. um, and that can be across different sort of criteria, so either emotionally um, or from a sort of social perspective or from a financial perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know the stats in our school, for example, the people who are on uh, free school meals or that kind of thing. Okay. So, um, so, so we, we do have quite a high number who are on our radar for, you know, these children need yeah. additional support for a variety of reasons. And it, it may be family circumstances, it may be poverty, and it, it may be 
um, other aspects in a bereavement or, or such like. Mm -hmm. So do you mean that you don't have access to actual data yourself? Uh, I, I've never tried. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I do, because I, I think that information would be um, uh, you know, not accessible to all staff. Yes. Only, only some. So I am. That's my assumption. Okay. But I may ask on Monday if I have access. To yeah, that that'd be a that'd be a good idea actually. Uh, as you said, you're a TA, so I don't know if you have access to all the register. But sometimes on the register you can access this information. But I mean, I'm talking about my experience in secondary. I don't know about uh, primary schools. Uh, okay. Right. So, um, does your school? offer specific training on how to support children in poverty? I don't believe they do, Ward. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, why do you think that is? Um, I don't know. Uh, it may be time constraint. Uh, we certainly have specific training on uh, a number of, uh, of things to do with supporting children and how to support children. and whether that's academically or, or otherwise, but we don't specifically have, or ha we haven't had training mm -hmm. to support children who come from a background of poverty. So um, do you believe that child poverty is a matter of safeguarding? Because you did mention the word vulnerable uh, when you described some of the students you had in your school. Yes, no, absolutely, I do. Okay. So in that sense, um, when we are trained, because we all do training on safeguarding, there yeah. should be some mention of child poverty and maybe uh, strategies that we could get in order to support our students when they are in a state of poverty. No, definitely. It, it, it really should. Um, that's a very good point. I, I don't know why that isn't actually specifically mentioned when we have that safeguarding training. It should be. Yes, I, I believe it should. And maybe this is what we're doing today. We're raising awareness uh, on that matter. Um, so I wanted to ask you if in your experience, so you said you started in your school in 2018, have you ever um, taught a child that you believe was living in a state of poverty? Not personally, no. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of um, kids who've been within classes that I've been working with who, who may uh, fit that criteria, um, but I, I don't know for sure if, if that's the case. But as you say, if, uh, you know, if we're looking at 9 out of 30, then uh, the answer is actually yes, but I didn't know about it. Well, it might be also an average, a national average, and depending yeah. on where your school is, um, your school might be very different from other schools. So we need to bear that in mind. It seems like we don't have access to enough data. Um, whether from the school or on a national level. So um, I wanted to ask you, um, how do you think child poverty affects uh, children in uh, primary schools? Um, well, <clears throat> from an educational point of view, learning. Uh, if, you're, if you're in a situation where you are uh, anxious, uh, perhaps undernourished, uh, haven't had enough sleep, uh, all these things, you know, you, you're not going to be able to access the curriculum to the extent that um, the others can. Yes. And, and fundamentally, that, that, that immediately puts you in a situation whereby you're at risk in the future of uh, going into the workplace without without a, you know, a, a good education. Without all the skills you could have gotten. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, does your school offer a breakfast club? Um, it, there's not the school itself. There's, um, there's a before school club, a breakfast club and after school club. Um, but um, I think they're private companies, 
Um, so they, they work with the school, but I, I don't believe that they come under the um, the financial auspices of the school, and they're not therefore financed by the school. No. Okay. They're, they're financed right. by the parents. All right. So um, I had a question regarding uh, pupil premium as well. Do you know which students are uh, pupil premium children in your school? No. Again, that's not information that I've got access to. Okay. I understand. Um, so now another question that might be a little bit more personal, but as, have you ever been affected personally uh, by um, the conditions of a students uh, living in poverty that you witnessed? Um, no, in my line of work, I, I guess the, 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 the baggage you tend to take home is, uh, is that of the, of the child that you're supporting in some cases. Uh, my, my, my first charge was quite a troubled uh, so, and it's hard because obviously you, 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 know, you don't want to carry that information back home with you, but it does tend to sort of prey on you a bit. And uh, certainly when sort of kids are telling you things that either not that should happen, I mean, even like a, you know, a, a dream is quite dark and, and mm -hmm. worrying and you think, well, wow, you know, that must be uh, really hard to live with. Mm -hmm. um, but not from the not from the point of view of, uh, of poverty, more from the point of view of um, emotional need, um, mm -hmm. or you know, working with kids as I do who have ASC, that you know, that their understanding of the world is, is very different, or can be very different. Indeed, um, and coping mechanisms for that. Mm -hmm. Indeed, um, I had a question regarding staff. Now. Um, are you aware or do you know of members of staff who are struggling financially in your school or in apart your um, in your acquaintances circle? Apart from me, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you might want to talk about it. <laughs> I, think, I think we're all struggling financially. Uh, as you know, what is it's not, not a job you do for the, uh, the money. Um, Indeed. Now, there is, one, there is one member of staff who, who I suspect might... Uh, in that uh, in that category, mostly because uh, that person tends to be at school a lot mm -hmm. and eat meals there mm -hmm. a lot, and I don't know if that's because the, the home environment isn't uh, isn't something that uh, they want to be around too much, or, or whether it's um, a financial financially related situation. But uh, but no, most of um, most of the people I know, I'm guessing, uh, aren't in desperate financial straits. Mm -hmm. um, but as as we all are lately, everything's an awful lot more expensive than it used to be. So. Yes, inflation is rising, and um, uh, we all know that a reason why colleagues might stay at school is maybe because they want to save on the heating costs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, as you said, if uh, there's access to food at work, uh, you might more be inclined to stay at work and eat there rather than go That's to the exactly, shop yeah. and spend money on yeah. it. Um, that's a very interesting point you're making. Um, so now, uh, finally, I wanted to ask you, uh, because you've been um, working throughout the lockdowns, have you noticed uh, the impact of COVID on uh, the children in your school and particularly on some of the children who are classed as vulnerable? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's funny because at, at this point, but the majority, I, two of the classes I work with, um, COVID seems to really like them. They've they've been. Uh, I think we get to if we get to five or six cases in the class, they go under what we call special measures. So mm -hmm. they have lunches in the classroom. 
they, their playtimes are separate from the other class groups' playtimes and stuff. And because that, those classes think are so used to this, they, they've become almost blase to it. We did the register the other day, and um, the the teacher was it was a bank teacher. She was standing a substitute teacher, mm-hmm. and she was calling the register. We I think we had about eight kids off. Mm-hmm. And as she was calling out the names, one of one of the one of the boys going, "No, COVID, COVID, COVID." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just almost like it, it just didn't matter anymore. Thought, that's actually quite good, you know. The attitude towards it now is that yeah, they've got COVID, whatever. Uh, but obviously, in the early days, uh, there was a high level of anxiety, not just amongst children, but amongst us as well, because we were we were working in the in the unknown. You know? Yes. And when even with the class size of five, six, seven, eight. Four or five-year-olds, they're still very, very close to you. Yes. And um, not uh, particularly adept at covering their mouths no. and their cough and sneeze and, and so on. So uh, warmly sharing their, their breath and... Uh, <laughs> and joints, yes. Liberally. Yes. Um, and uh, thankfully, you know, a, a lot of that has sort of gone by the by. But yeah, I definitely saw... I mean, my, my own kids, uh, the younger one, uh, he was really sort of quite bothered, and uh, he's in one of those classes that COVID seems to like. Mm-hmm. Uh, never got him though. So, so far, so good. Yeah, it's quite. Um, I think it was sort of quite concerning to see how how a lot of the children were really being affected, and you know, obviously relatives of theirs who they may be lost to or who were hospitalised or yeah. really quite sick. And this has an impact on their emotional being and also financial be- state because yeah. if you have a, a parent who suffers from uh, COVID on long term or who passed, uh, it will definitely um, reduce the family income for sure. Not for sure. Um, well, thank you so much, Bob, for your um, insight. It was uh, a pleasure to um, hear well you. Lovely. Um, And um, yes, we're just going to end uh, the discussion. So thank you. So that was our second speaker. Bob worked in a state school, a primary state school. So different experience, different student cohort, um, but still um, the same situation. Uh, child poverty is not really talked about during safeguarding um, training and it might be something we need to work on in our own schools. It was my first uh, show today on the Teachers Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. It was delightful for me to share um, my um, um, interest on these topics. I promise next time that my uh, recordings will have a better quality and uh, Have a lovely week. Thank you.